In order to truly become part of the global business environment, your business needs to constantly change and adapt to a variety of new constants. Welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders with Kimberly J. Lewis. We will help you navigate these changes on today's program and help you think beyond the boundaries. The opportunities are limitless if you are prepared. Now, here is your host, Kimberly J. Lewis. Hello and welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders. I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host, and this series is in cooperation with Cinda Virtual, which brings you thought leaders and business stories from around the world. So you can learn more about Cinda on www.cinda.org. Now, we don't only bring you thought leaders from around the world, we also have listeners from around the world. So good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you may be listening from today. And if you're new to this series, let me tell you what the series is about. The series is about the impact globalization, digital transition, and the connected world is having on our organizations and what this impact is doing to the kind of leadership we need to drive long-term success in today's economy. In this series, we've talked about everything from issues such as artificial intelligence to leadership issues such as gender balance and business values and ethics that may impact your organization or your individual career. So please listen to us live, 3 p.m. Pacific time every Tuesday. And if you can't get us live, don't worry about it because we are on every major podcast platform. So you can find us just Google Leadership Beyond Borders. And that's all I'm going to say for now because I really want to get into this into today's series. And today's is part one of a two-part series on leadership. And today's business leaders do face a number of challenges, and these challenges did not just begin with the pandemic. But for hundreds of years, military leaders have been facing challenges, even bigger challenges than the ones we have today. But when we talk about leadership and we train in leadership, we don't always look towards our military leaders for the lessons in leadership. And that is what we are going to do today. We're going to talk to two military leaders and we're going to talk about leadership. And our first guest is Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, and he's the owner of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. And since 2000, both domestic and internationally, Dr. McCausland has conducted numerous executive leadership development workshops and has consulted for leaders in public education, U.S. government institutions, nonprofit organizations, and corporations. Now, Dr. McCausland is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College, and he's a visiting professor of the National Security at Dickinson's College. And... He is also a national security consultant for CBS radio and television. And during his military career, Jeff served in a variety of command and staff positions in both the United States and Europe during the Kosovo crisis and operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm. He is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, the U.S. Army Airborne and Ranger Schools, and he holds a master's and Ph.D. from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. And he is also the co-author of Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. And our second guest is Colonel Tom Fossler, and he served 30 years in the U.S. Army. He's commanded an infantry balloon in the Vietnam War and a mechanized infantry Battalion Task Force in Germany. He is a graduate of Pennsylvania Military College, Georgia State University, the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, and the U.S. Army War College. Tom has taught military history, strategy, and leadership at the U.S. Army War College, and he is a former director of the U.S. Army Military. And he also has a lot of uh, television credits um, on the History Channel and C-SPAN. And he has a number of published works from the Gettysburg campaign and to the work we're going to be talking about today, which is the battle-tested Gettysburg leadership lessons for 21st century leaders. So, um, gentlemen, I really want to get into this. So welcome to the show. Great pleasure to be with you. Good to be with you, Kimberly. 
So let's just kind of start on 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 why you wrote this book and and maybe um, uh, yeah why you wrote this book. <laughs> well, I'll uh, I'll kick it off with with uh, this uh, this answer in that uh, for the last ten years, Jeff and I have conducted uh, a series of leadership seminars uh, on the Gettysburg battlefield. Uh, Jeff has also branched out uh, on his own and with with other with other people on other battlefields across uh, uh, across the country, and I'll let him talk about that perhaps later. But here at Gettysburg, we use the Gettysburg battle and battlefield as a case study uh, to examine leadership, particularly leadership under crisis. So having taken uh, out out in the field various uh, groups, uh, corporations, nonprofits, um, um, the basic civilian world out on the battlefield and and using the leaders and the leadership uh, as that case study to uh, study that leadership under crisis. Having done that for all these years then, what we decided was we would put all that experience into a book and uh, maybe working ourselves out of a job. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> but but uh, that's what the book. That's what the book is all about. It's a it's a summary of our experiences uh, with organizations studying leadership on the battlefield. And I just quickly add, Kimberly, that Tom and I had both been at the War College. I've been a dean. As you said, he was the head of the Military History Institute. One thing we would do is we'd take the officers and senior government civilians who were students of the War College. Uh, down to Gettysburg for what was traditionally called a military staff ride. We did that every year with the students as part of their leadership development. Uh, And over time, it occurred to me that this was just an enormous case study, and one could use this case study, this story of Gettysburg, because during times of crisis, good leadership and bad leadership stick out in bold relief, and you can see them much more clearly. And a battle certainly is a crisis for the two organizations that are involved. And secondarily, I would add that I think there's a certain stickiness to using stories to impart concepts to people. One could write a conceptual book, and there are a lot of great ones on leadership that stick to the conceptual. But if you can tie that to a story, I think it resonates more with people, has a certain what I call stickiness, and then they'll remember the concept a lot longer. Mm-hmm. So just, um, I think that's a great idea. Just quick for our listeners, um, can one of you just in in one minute kind of, somebody who might not be familiar with Gettysburg, um, what, was, what was Gettysburg about? Well, Gettysburg is going to be uh, a, a major battle, if not the major battle of, uh, of the American Civil War. Uh, the Civil War um, begins in 1861 last four years to 1865. Um, there'll be uh, 29 major campaigns and battles and several few thousand uh, smaller battles, skirmishes uh, uh, that take place during that four years. 620,000 soldiers will die in those four years. Um, and Gettysburg, the battle um, comes about at roughly the midpoint of the war in several dimensions. First midpoint on the calendar. Uh, the battles fought over three days, uh, the first three days of July of 1863. It's also um, places that at the, at the midpoint of the war, and it places the battle taking place at the, at the midpoint of the accumulation of casualties that I mentioned, 620,000 overall. About half of those men are killed before Gettysburg, another half killed after Gettysburg, seven uh, 1,700 are killed in the battle here, over 50,000 casualties. But it is a the premier test in uh, for a, it, at a period of crisis for the for the continuation mm-hmm. of the country. As President Abraham Lincoln said, it was a test whether this nation, so conceived, so dedicated, can continue. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let, using this as an example, um, let's kind of spring into to leadership. I mean, you had different leaders during during that war, and you had different leadership styles. Okay, and you have lead, different leadership styles today. Can can one of you talk to about some of the leadership styles you talk in your book? Um, you talk about kind of mission command and, and watch my lips. What are the different leadership styles that you can see in this battle? Um, 
tell you what, Jeff, I'll do Mission Command if you want to do the read my lips thing. How's that? Fair enough. <laughs> so, so Mission Command is a, is a philosophy. It's a philosophy of leadership. Interestingly enough, the U.S. Army will adopt this philosophy, uh, which uh, from, from studying uh, the, uh, the, the, the German Army, principally the reforms of, in Prussia uh, following the defeats at Jena Auerstadt, but it's a leadership philosophy in which uh, we use mission orders. The leader uses mission orders to his subordinates in order to accomplish the mission. Uh, these are directives that emphasize to subordinates the results to be attained, but it does not restrict them on how to get those results. They must have an understanding. And uh, they must focus on what is to be accomplished uh, and the purpose. There must be an understanding of why it's necessary to do what they're being asked to do. Um, the senior leader, uh, once the orders are given, that has the, the responsibility to establish control measures to make sure that uh, the subordinate sections or departments or units can accomplish uh, the, the, the mission. And mm-hmm. the, the relationship between the senior leader and the subordinate leaders is such that the, the discussions um, are, are neither so detailed that they stifle initiative nor so general that they provide insufficient information for the subordinates to achieve uh, the mission, the objective. So that's mission orders. Okay. Yeah, if I was to move on to the watch my lips, I mean, this is absolute control. You know, and all leaders, I would argue, no matter where they are, uh, lead on a continuum from absolute control to total empowerment. And you have to figure out where you are on that particular cursor, what you're comfortable with, how much risk you, you wish. The person who's into the watch my lips and total control just is that. I want you to do something, watch my lips as I explain to you what I want you to do, when I want you to do it, and how I want you to do it. And when you accomplish that task, come back and see me. Uh, One Confederate commander, Thomas Stonewall Jackson, who was one of Lee's leading subordinates, was really uh, the the epitome of that style. And as a result, had more officers in his command under court-martial charges than the entire Confederate army combined besides him. Now, Jackson will not physically be at Gettysburg. He is actually killed in a battle at Chancellorsville about a month prior to this. But the influence in terms of how he had developed subordinates will carry on from there. So it's all a matter of how much empowerment a leader is allowing his organization to have. And frankly, how much risk he or she is comfortable with because any leader realizes as I empower others, they're going to do something different than I would do it. And what they do may not exactly work. But if they operate within that mission command, am I going to reprimand them and potentially then discourage them from taking initiative in future? Or am I going to accept responsibility as the person in charge of the team? Mm-hmm. Okay. So they're, they're, they're kind of at opposite ends here. It was what I'm understanding. You're saying that, you know, either complete control or complete empowerment. And um, watch my lips would be the co- whole complete control. And you gave a good example about that. Um, is one of these styles more effective than the other? Or is it really depending on the situation you're in? It really I think, depends on the leader and the situation. Uh, we use a definition of leadership, which we like because it's brief and to the point provided by Dwight Eisenhower. And that's leadership's about deciding what has to be done and getting others to want to do it. The second half of that definition from Eisenhower I find fascinating. He'd been a five-star general president of the United States. One might think he just gave out orders and everybody quickly followed them. But Eisenhower was wisely suggesting to us, we've got to get a certain amount of buy-in from everybody uh, if we're going to maximize performance. And, you know, you talk to global leaders all the time, uh, Kimberly, and you talk to them about the world we're in, which is a rapidly changing world and a world in crisis due to the pandemic, economic dislocation that we see, and challenges to our institution. And in periods of crisis, people need to act and act quickly. And smart leaders, I would argue, of whatever stripe, are going to empower their team to, in fact, do that. So in periods of time like crisis, you need to empower others. But also, you need to adjust your style uh, with respect to your team. Obviously, mm-hmm. if you put somebody in charge of a very important part of the organization and they're brand new, you want to develop them. You want them to build up their confidence. 
and then you over time can kind of ease back. If you've got mm-hmm. somebody that's been working for you for 20, 30 years, well, obviously, they're much more comfortable in a mission-style command environment, and you're going to allow them a lot more latitude. Finally, of course, leaders have to determine those things which, you know, an 80% solution, frankly, is good enough for the organization versus those things which are really all about the very survival of the organization, the existential issue. And if Mm -hmm. it's an existential issue for the organization, then the leader probably needs to provide very, very strong control because that may mean whether or not the organization survives. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And um, I want to talk more about this leadership in this crisis. And we're going to take a short break first, okay, and then we'll come back to that. And for our guests, we're talking to Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, and he's the owner of um, Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. And he has been working internationally. Um, He's a colonel from the U.S. Army and former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. And our other guest is Tom Fussler, who has served 30 years in the Army and commanded infantries in the Vietnam War and a mechanized infantry battalion task force in Germany. And they are the authors of Battle Tested Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st Century. And if you'd like to get in charge with them, get in touch with them, you can go to Facebook under Diamond Six Leadership. And it's on all Twitter, on LinkedIn, and on YouTube under Diamond Six Leadership, and on Instagram under D6 Leadership. And Jeffrey is on LinkedIn under Jeffrey McCausland. And uh, reach out to them, they'd love to hear from you. And with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Tune in each week for the Labenthal Report with hosts Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman. The Labenthal Report keeps you in tune with market conditions, investment opportunities, and outlooks based on the stories and headlines to keep you in touch with your financial success. Are you picking the right financial path? Find out by listening to The Labenthal Report live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. are listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. Do you have a question or comment about our show? Please send an email to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Again, that's leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Now back to this week's program. Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders, and I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host. And today we're, we are talking with um, Dr. Jeffrey McCausland and, and Tom Fussler, and they're the co-authors of Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders. Um, this is a great book which uses the, the Battle of Gettysburg and military leadership lessons to help us in our leadership roles today. And before, before the uh, break, we were talking about these different leadership styles, you know, mission command from uh, watch my lips and the one question i have you you know everybody has a liter- leadership style but these these leaders in the um armies in gettysburg they were not all military 
professionals, were they? They were from all from from all branches of industries and all market segments. Can somebody tell me about yeah. that? Kimberly, uh, point well taken. You're exactly correct. Um, again, the war is going to last uh, four years. Over that time, the Northern Army, the Union Army, also called the Federal Army, uh, will have 583 general officers. Can we call them then senior leaders? 583 most senior leaders. Of that number, uh, only a third of them were professional soldiers. The remaining two-thirds of the generals fighting for the North in the Civil War came from civilian occupations. They were uh, judges and lawyers and bankers. Uh, they were politicians. They were engineers. They were students. They were doctors. And so uh, these men, most of whom, unless they were uh, recent European immigrants who would experience, as an example, the revolutions of 1848, most of them will not have any military experience. They must be quick learners on what these military affairs are all about and how to lead soldiers uh, in combat, how to logistically supply them. And so that's an uh, important part of, uh, of, the, of the leadership story, understanding that uh, 2.6 million men will serve in the Northern Army during the war. This is an expansion the army was small at the start of the war, 60,000 men will expand overall, 2.6 million enlistments. Also important to understand that 25% of the northern soldiers were not born in the United States. They were recent mm -hmm. immigrants. Mm -hmm. You know, if I could add real quick to that, Kimberly, uh, this uh, importance of this battle for one second war, and that is Gettysburg, there are only two battles in American history with the entire fate of the, our country, I think, hung in the balance. The first, of course, is uh, the Battle of Yorktown. If you lose at Yorktown, which we might have, we would still perhaps be a British colony today. If we lose at Gettysburg, we might still be a divided nation. And, you know, the importance of this battle in the war, uh, Ken Burns, when he did the documentary, once said, all events in American history prior to Civil War led to it, and all the events afterward were a consequence, and we feel those reverberations even today. Mm -hmm. But back to that learning leader, this goes to the highest level. Abraham Lincoln, who arrives with only very little military experience, had been a captain during the Black Hawk War of militia and never heard of round fire and anger, will spend a great deal of his time actually taking books from the Library of Congress and studying strategy and tactics. And over time, becomes a much better strategist and thinker about how war is conducted. And as a consequence, is able to, I think, make judgments about commanders much more quickly. And as we all know, goes through a long list of Union generals until 1864, when he actually elevates Ulysses S. Grant to command all federal armies. Mm -hmm. So these 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 five hundred and eighty three senior leaders they were were learning on the job wouldn't you say and um, that's that's quite quite amazing because I think that's what we do uh, a lot of us do in leadership positions is is we have to learn as we go um, and coming back to the war there's some other lessons on on. Uh, leadership, okay? And there were some events on July 1st, 1863 that really raised some leadership questions. Can you talk about what that was and, and what we learned from it? Yeah, um, let's go back to July 1st and, and understanding that the battle begins not as a planned battle, but as a meeting engagement. That is to say, uh, it's a it's a it's a battle that begins with the coming together, the unplanned coming together of two smaller portions of two much larger armies, and there are two incidents that I can think of, Kimberly, that immediately on the first day that stand out. One of those is the uh, commander, the leader of a cavalry division, a Northern Union cavalry division, uh, Brigadier General John Buford. As the first, he commands the first northern troops to arrive on the battlefield. And uh, he then will send out patrols and identify the fact that the Confederate Army is in the immediate area and will very soon descend upon Gettysburg. And uh, the key terrain there, 10 major roads come into the center of Gettysburg. They must control Gettysburg. They must control the terrain features that uh, that uh, protect Gettysburg. And so he will make decisions. He's been empowered uh, 
by his senior commanders to make decisions as to when and where the battle will begin. And so he is a good example of the use of mission orders which he has been sent to Gettysburg with and the mission orders that he in turn will give to his subordinate commanders. In contrast, on the first day, we have a senior leader of the Confederate Army. Richard Yule commands a third of the Confederate Army that fights at Gettysburg. He commands uh, the 2nd Infantry Corps. And he will be ordered at the end of the first day by the Confederate commander, General Robert Edward Lee, to continue the attack through the village of Gettysburg to seize the high ground south of it. You will hesitate. He will not know what to do because Lee's order is further phrased. He said, continue the attack to seize the high ground to your front if you find it practical to do so. This goes back to what we talked about earlier with Read My Lips. Richard Ewell was raised as a leader under the tutelage of Stonewall Jackson, who Jeff mentioned, and Jackson's command style. Jackson would never have given that order to Ewell. Jackson, unfortunately, for the Confederates, is dead, killed in action uh, the previous, uh, uh, in, a, in a previous battle. And so Ewell does not know how to react to uh, his new commander's command style. And so he does not uh, make the attack. He hesitates, and precious opportunity is lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. and quickly on that, Kimberly, for those two guys, Buford, the Union guy, of course, then sends a message to his commander, a guy named John Reynolds, and says, hey, get the infantry up here first thing in the morning. What does that tell leaders for today? Well, we have to lead the boss. And if we're Mm -hmm. the boss, we have to create a climate whereby we can be led. It doesn't do any of us a good if we're a captain of a ship and someone comes up and says, hey, we're six six inches from an iceberg. That's interesting. It's just not very useful. Mm -hmm. We need to know when we're six miles from the iceberg. And these two guys, the subordinate... Uh, Buford and his boss, Reynolds, have created that kind of a relationship. So when Reynolds gets that message from a subordinate, he moves immediately. He doesn't say, hey, let's have a meeting. Let's you know create a committee to study the problem. He moves immediately. Contrast that with Ewell, once again, who'd been in command of a, now a much higher level position, a more strategic position, elevated, only about 30 days in the job, perhaps not, not very experienced at that level, perhaps not very confident. And as Tom said, we believe schooled in that you know, watch my lips, total control mentality. And as a consequence, initiative was nothing he had been taught or encouraged to do. And at a critical moment then, why are we surprised? He shows no initiative. And that's why, again, leaders today have to create a climate that encourages initiative so people will take action, particularly in the oftentimes crisis environment we're in right now, immediately in this very rapidly changing world that we see around us. Yeah, it sounds like he was kind of like the deer in the headlights, not knowing what to do. They are. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, 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 and just going on to what you're talking about, crises, okay? Because, I mean, you know, we th- this was, this we were, the U.S. was in a crisis at this time, okay? But um, there's been, you know, we've been in many crises over the years. And how how do you find opportunities within a crisis? And, and you had some examples um, at, at Gettysburg and some, other examples you know how can leaders find opportunities in a crisis well i think it's fascinating and i always use as an example kimberly if you take the word the written word for crisis in chinese brings together two symbols and that's what written chinese often does bring in bring together symbols of two different words or more to create a new word the two symbols for crisis are danger that seems pretty logical and opportunity Danger and opportunity. And that's the way I think leaders need to think. Uh, Rahm Emanuel, who was chief of staff during the Obama administration, was subsequently the mayor of Chicago here in the United States, used to say, never waste a perfectly good crisis. And we right now, I would argue in this country, and frankly, almost any country around the world, uh, is involved in three crises simultaneously that are, to some degree, self-reinforcing. The first is the pandemic. 
which we hopefully see the light at the end of the tunnel. The second is the economic dislocation for organizations and individuals brought about by that pandemic. Some of those economic challenges were already present prior to this beginning, but were accelerated by it. And the third one, certainly here in the United States, but I think more broadly in Europe and elsewhere, is a crisis of social justice and people's faith in institutions. And we Mm -hmm. see that being played out around the world. The pandemic may go away or at least be less of a crisis in the next year. Those other two uh, will certainly linger. And leaders today have got to think about knowing that one thing will not happen. We're not going to spring back to December 2019. I don't Mm -hmm. care what your organization is. You have to adapt to the new environment. Uh, And Tom and I talk about this a lot using our book, Gettysburg, learn from the past to prepare for the future and adapt, innovate, and overcome. I talk to many educational associations and uh, universities or large uh, educational school districts in the United States. They're adapting very rapidly to different types of educational delivery, certainly online, hybrid formats, synchronous, asynchronous, as well as physically uh, delivering uh, education. I was on the phone with a bunch of people in the financial services industry, and several of them told me that they nearly went out of business, but they had to change the method of delivery, and they had to change the products that they were providing their clients, and they believe now are stronger coming about this than they were at the onset. And if you look back to 2008 and how corporations bounced back, the corporations that adapted and changed due to the environment, number one, and number two, I would argue, took care of their organization, whether that organization was soldiers at Gettysburg or people in a corporation today, came out of this particular event, the 2008 crisis event, as stronger organizations than they were before. But we have to keep in mind that this is a challenge. You know, I was reading last week, the American National Intelligence Council put out an annual report looking out to the year 2040. And this particular analysis by the U.S. government said that the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic marks the most significant singular global disruption we've seen since the World War II with health, economic, political, and security implications that will ripple for years to come. Mm -hmm. And that's the wave that leaders across the board business, politics, not-for-profits, et cetera, are going to have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And and what you said, uh, Jeff, um, on, you know, trying to be, when you're in a crisis, also trying to innovate, um, I think that's a really big point, really good point. And uh, you have a super example um, in Gettysburg, but we're going to take a break first. And when we come back, um, we've seen, you know, let's talk about innovation and how when you give your subordinates some room that can foster some innovation um, with some examples from your book. But we're going to take a f- quick break first. And for our listeners, we are talking with Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, and he is the founder of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy, and he has been known internationally and domestically conducting numerous executive leadership development workshops, and he is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. And our second guest is Tom Fossler, and he has 30 years, Colonel Tom Foster, and he has 30 years in the U.S. Army commanding infantries in um, Vietnam, as well as a battalion task force in Germany. And he has numerous television credits on the History Channel and C-SPAN. And both of our guests are co-authors of Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders. And if you'd like to learn more about Diamond Six Leadership, you can go on Facebook under Diamond Six Leadership. That is on LinkedIn under Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy and on Twitter and on YouTube and on Instagram. And if you'd like to reach out to Jeffrey, you can reach out to him on LinkedIn under Jeffrey McCausland. And he is also under on Twitter under uh, McCausland. I McCausland. So reach out to our guests. And this broadcast is being brought to you by Cinda. And Cinda holds virtual conferences, training, market research, and legislative white papers focused on digital. To learn more about Cinda, go to www.cinda.org. And with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. 
Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Tired of the Get Rich Quick or How to Flip Home shows? Are you ready to step up your game and invest in commercial real estate? James Nelson, a top New York City broker, will show you step-by-step how to acquire, operate, and profit. You'll also hear from real estate legends on how they made their fortunes and industry experts on strategies for success. Tune in to Real Estate Investing, live from New York, on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Business. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. are listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. Do you have a question or comment about our show? Please send an email to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Again, that's leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Now back to this week's program. Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders on Voice America's business channel. And I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host. And today we are talking with the co-authors of Battle-Tested Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders with co-authors Dr. Jeff McCausland and Colonel Tom Fussler. And before the break, um, we were talking about, we had some great examples from Gettysburg on on you know, man, uh, leading in crises, and we're talking a little bit about today. And and Jeff, you said something about innovation, and um, you know, giving your subordinates room to be innovative. And there's a, there's a great example that I didn't even know came from this battle or came from the Civil War. Okay, uh, could you talk about innovation and maybe this example? Sure, Kimberly. <laughs> You know, sometimes people confuse initiative and innovation. Initiative is people taking action uh, without being directly ordered to do so. And we touched on that in the previous segment. And leaders creating a climate where their team is encouraged to take action. Innovation, Peter Drucker, who's a very famous uh, leadership theorist, talked about is change that brings on a new level of performance. So the Wright brothers invented the airplane, but actually the change that brought on a new level of performance was using aircraft to deliver the mail, deliver passengers, deliver cargo. That was a change that brought on a new level of performance. And organizations innovate in three different ways. They create a new product, a new process, or a new organizational structure. During the American Civil War, along comes a guy named Jonathan Letterman. He is a medical officer, and he's assigned the Union Army. And he really innovates in all these three areas, much to the benefit of the Union Army. First of all, he comes off and decides we need a new organizational structure. And he convinces the leadership of the Union Army to put a doctor at every regimental level. Regiments were a group of about assigned to be a thousand soldiers, though often fewer than that, to allow medical care to be more immediate to the wounded. He, second of all, gave some training to the band. Each regiment had a band, and once the battle would start, of course, you, uh, musicians put down their instruments and became litter bearers and providing basic first aid. So that was the new organizational structure. He created a new product. He created the first field ambulance that allowed wounded to be efficiently and more carefully moved off the battlefield. And then most importantly, pro- probably, was he created a new process, how we operate. And that process was triage. Triage being, in any mass casualty exercise, even to this day, <coughs> medical personnel around the world are trained to treat arriving casualties in three ways. Those, sadly, who are, their injuries are fatal and they're going to die, we give them consolation, perhaps religious uh, consolation. Those who we could give a little first aid to and then deal with them later, and those who, if we get them to the operating room right away, uh, their chances of recovery go up. And that continues this very day. And in World War II, Omar Bradley would say triage was the most important innovation in military medicine 
uh, in history. The Union Army will adopt all of these innovations. And what do we see over time? As the war goes on, and Tom described the casualties, we see more Union soldiers surviving, recovering, and returning to their units to fight once again. Well, when the war begins, the northern population is about two or three times the south. So they have more people to begin with. Plus, the south has a second problem. They have to maintain a certain amount of manpower back home because, in many ways, southern leaders' biggest worry during the war was a slave rebellion. So how do we control the slaves back on the plantation? And as a consequence, they don't do any of those things. And it's just a matter of numbers. Obviously, over time, they start having more and more difficulty filling the ranks uh, by virtue of the fact that they can't manage the wounded. Robert E. Lee will leave Gettysburg and leave 5,000 wounded soldiers at Gettysburg because he can't transport them. And all leaders today, Kimberly, in this very chaotic, adaptive world we're living in, have to to, uh, deal with this. I used to work for a general who used to say, you know, if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance a lot less. And that's part and parcel of innovation. Final point I'd make on that, you know, somebody, somebody once said, that, you know, initiative pays your salary in an organization. Innovation pays your pension in terms of the organization continuing on into the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really interesting point, and um, it's so relevant to today, too, when it goes back to your point, um, Jeff, on, on you know, giving some room for the, to the subordinates right. to be able to innovate, okay, and to be, um, you know, to, and I, I, I really, it was a great story because I had no idea where triage came from, and now I do, <laughs> so, um, but, uh, you know, it's not just giving room for innovation, it's also giving room to, to make critical decisions, and, um, um, and Tom, I'm going to come over to you um, to talk a little bit about making critical decisions because you have something in the book, um, a story about Boyd and the OODA loop. Can you talk to us about what that is and what kind of example that is for us today? Well, John Boyd was uh, was an Air Force uh, pilot and and the U.S. Air Force pilot and served during the Korean War. He was an ace. Uh, highly accomplished, and he'll be assigned after after the war. He'll spend some time at the uh, at the uh, command that trains that trains fighter pilots, and he was he was very good at that. And and he he developed a uh, a system called the OODA loop: observe, orient, decide, and act. And so, in a situational crisis, if you go through those steps. Uh, whether you're doing an active thing like flying a, a fighter jet or if you're in your boardroom uh, confronting a crisis from a, from a competitor, um, then uh, you have to observe the nature of the, of, of the crisis. Uh, you need to orient on what is going to allow you to uh, gain success over that crisis. Um, you make a decision. And, and act, uh, and and give for the senior leader to give give the orders to the to the subordinate leader the uh, the tasks assign the tasks that will accomplish the objective, and so observe, orient, decide, and act. And this is one of those that comes from uh, again from a from a military a military standpoint transferable to. Uh, if you will, the civilian or corporate world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how how important in making critical decisions is um, the the respect of the person making the decision? Okay, um, you know, you, you have you're you're giving you're give, you're making a decision. You're trying to get that buy-in that you talked about. Okay, and how how much does the role of the competence and and the respect of the person doing that play? Well, I would say that's critical, Kimberly. Uh, you know, and to add one thing on the OODA loop for a second, though, the crucial factor then, of course, is time. And that's mm-hmm. the one resource that all leaders don't have enough of, and it's the most inelastic resource they manage. We manage people, we manage money, we manage capital items if we're running a major organization. And those we can ex- perhaps apply more people, throw more money at a problem, but time is inelastic. It's often the one that's most rigid. And we all know the perfect plan is never executed or as we like to say in the military, no plan survives the first round fired. Back to that mission command and encouraging initiative in the organization. Eisenhower used to say, you know, planning, the plan is nothing, but the planning is everything as you think through what you're going to do in contingencies and galvanize resources. Now, more to your point, 
you know, I say trust is the glue that connects the leader to the organization. After the Gulf War, my commander, Norman Schwarzkopf, who I'd worked with for briefly in the Pentagon, gave a speech at West Point to cadets. And he said at that time, all leaders, doesn't matter where they are, what type of career path they are, fundamentally it comes down to two things, competence and character, competence mm-hmm. and character. We all know in any organization, if, if our leader is incompetent, well, he or she is dangerous to us, perhaps, and to the survival and success of the organization. And we're going to look for someplace else to go. But character is also critically important. Uh, do we trust this person? Are they a person of character, integrity? Uh, are they looking out for our welfare as, in, as part of this organization? Or are they only, only worrying about them, their own uh, themselves? I, I know of a major corporation, for example, here in the United States. I won't name it for, for possible <laughs> legal action here. But I know they, uh, called, a, they called a Zoom call uh, for several hundred of their employees uh, didn't tell him what the meeting was about, got him on the phone, and immediately told him in a two-minute Zoom meeting that they had all been fired. Okay? Oh, <clears throat> well, well mm. obviously, that didn't help those 200 people who got fired, but they sent a message to everybody else in the organization that the leadership of this organization really doesn't care about us very mm-hmm. much at all, and therefore that bond, which is critical to maximize performance in an organization, starts to break down. Yeah. And, and okay, that's so important. And I can't believe that somebody actually fired 200 people on Zoom. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. That's horrible. Um, but I, I just have a question on the time. Okay. Um, you know, is a quick decision better than a, a, a long one? And, and why do we sometimes uh, here in the Western culture put some, uh, so much emphasis on complex decision making? Well, because we're dealing with complex decision-making, particularly at the strategic level, and what leaders have to realize, we can talk about in the military moving from the tactical to the operational to the strategic, or direct leadership if you're in a, you know, a commercial organization, organizational leadership and strategic. The difference is, at the direct and organizational level, you actually solve a problem. We're supposed to fix something. We're supposed to make a product. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. At the strategic level, we manage problems. We're not going to solve them. We can make things better or worse. And strategic leaders, I think the audience that you deal with, uh, deal with those, and they become what's often referred to as wicked problems. And what I mean by a wicked problem, as you start to attack the problem, the problem starts to change. If you're operating in a corporate world in a competitive environment, you can have the best plan in the world. But don't forget, your competition gets a vote on your plan. You set up a plan to deal with an environment and with your competition, they can do it differently as well. And that's why that complexity, I think, was what compounds some senior leaders. But time becomes a crucial variable. When do you make the decision? And oftentimes, when you make the decision can be more important than the decision you take. Because if you wait too long, well, what happens? We all know options start to disappear. If I eat up all the time, then there's no time left for those working for me to work out their subordinate plans and issues, brief everybody, and get, and get moving. Um, we used to say in the military that, you know, there's at least uh, uh, about 20% of the time available should go to the leader, and then he or she has to make a decision prior to when we're going to act. So 80% is, rever- is reserved for the team to get a full understanding of what we got to do, organize everything, and get on with it. Final mm-hmm. word. Colin Powell used to say P equals 40 to 60. And what he meant by that was when you got about 40 to 60% of the information you'd like to have, that's when you got to make a decision. If you wait to have all the information you'd like to have, you'll never make a decision. <laughs> no, good. I mean, these are these are so these are such great lessons and um, just for our listeners to know that this is uh, only the first part of our series. So we're going to be talking with Jeff and Tom again, um, going into more lessons uh, about what we can learn from the military and what we can learn from Gettysburg. So please make sure you tune in to us next week. Um, Jeff and Tom, I think we're gonna we're gonna stop here for now for today and we'll continue again next week. And for our listeners, we are talking with Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, and that's he's the the founder of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. And Diamond Six is with the number six, not spelled out. Okay. Oh, it's the other and way around, Kimberly. The, re- the reverse. 
Oh, it's reverse. It's spelled, spelled out. out. Okay. Six spelled out. Yeah. Okay, sorry about that, guys. Okay, so Diamond Six is spelled out. Okay, and um, you can you can find him on Twitter on all social media under Diamond Six. Okay, Diamond Six Leadership. Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy, um, and on Twitter it's under D Six Leadership, and you can also reach out to Jeffrey on LinkedIn, and that's Mick Causlin, M C C A U S L A N D, and Tom, Tom, uh, you can reach out to Tom through Diamond Six Leadership, and please listen to us next week. Um, any any one last word from each of you before we start our series? We continue on next week. Tom, one last word. No, we've got uh, we've got a lot more uh, to to add to uh, to the story yeah. here, and uh, so we look forward to to uh, to the next session. Yeah, and, and Jeff? I just I just add uh, great pleasure, Kimberly. Thank you so much for having us. A big shout out to all the listeners, and you know that watchword we believe comes from that book. To reiterate is. Effective leaders have to learn from the past to prepare for the future. And that's what we try to do in Battle Tested. Yeah. And and to my readers, um, please get Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons from 21st Century. Uh, I, ha- as a leader, ha- have read lots of books and done lots of interviews. And I do have to say, this is one of the, the best leadership books I have read. Okay. And I'm clearly recommending this to my leaders. And with that, um, please also understand that this uh, broadcast is brought to you by Cinda. And Cinda provides provides digital leadership courses, white papers, legislative papers in Europe. It's a European digital nonprofit association. And if you'd like to learn more about Cinda, go to www.cinda.org. And with that, Please tune in to us next week as we continue the story on battle-tested Gettysburg leadership lessons for 21st leaders. And thank you, Tom and Jeff, and until next week. Thank you for joining us on Leadership Beyond Borders. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Kimberly J. Lewis, on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.